This is Mike Dilk of Relax Back UK. Hi, and thank you for joining me, Mike Dilk, on the Relax Back UK show here on UK Health Radio, your global real feel-good radio station. Now, on this show, I get to talk with some absolutely fantastic people, and this episode is no exception. The topic this week is extreme physical endurance and how and why the body will cope with being put through all kinds of extreme, extreme situations. However, this is actually relevant to everyone, not just people that can run three or four marathons on the trot. So please do keep listening if you're not an extreme athlete. The first guest is Dr. Rahul Jandial, and he's a neurosurgeon and neuroscientist. He's spoken on this show before a couple of times. He's an absolutely fascinating guy. And we talk about how the brain might allow us to do all sorts of things we didn't expect we could do, and also how it allows some people to do feats of pretty extreme endurance. They're experiencing pain, but those, uh, those chemicals that are rewarding them can subdue the pain. Then it's someone who knows about this stuff in theory and also in practice because he is an Olympian himself. But now he trains celebrities for some of the charity challenges that they might do for comic relief. They are incredibly tenacious. They're very driven, much like athletes are. Um, and, and critically, they're, they're actually able to deal with both success, but also to deal with failure. And, and that's really important when you're training for some of these big challenges to understand that it's not always going to go well. Professor Greg White is a, a, an Olympian modern pentathlete and also an academic. So please do stick around for a very interesting show. So in this area, the phrase mind over matter seems to crop up quite a lot. So the first thing I asked Dr. Um, Rahul Jandial was, is mind over a matter a thing? I think it can be. And let's not forget uh, that, you know, the mind does arise from matter. Uh, our our brains are made of the same carbons and hydrogens and ions and electrons and uh, as as cosmic dust. So when we look at the brain as a structural uh, entity, I think it helps us understand the mind because they're intersected. So if your child is trapped under a car, the the mind will feel the emotional stress and guide the brain to release all of the hormones and chemicals it has to extract yourself and your loved one out of that situation. Right. And it will give now, you well, what seems like superhuman strength and you can lift something that you couldn't lift normally. For a moment. Yes. Yeah. Now you might try to lift and you have weak bones and they may snap. I mean, there, it's not, it, it's not like it's been dramatized in, in television, but you will deploy all the um, electrical, chemical, and hormonal components in the structure of your brain to fire those signals to all the nerves in your body. But it, but it was mind turning the matter of the brain into something that commanded the muscles and the flesh and the carcass that the the that is that is the vehicle. Excuse me, better than carcass is that 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 is holding the brain. So mind and matter are are one and the same. Your mind, your brain, the, the, the thing that the brain generated, the mind, the emotions, 
led the brain to release some structural components, deploy some structural components. Right. And I think that's very important to remember that when we do talk about all the amazing things the human brain can do, it should still fit within the understanding of it as flesh, because it is flesh. It should still fit under the understanding of it as electrical, because these the flesh of the brain is like 90 billion microscopic jellyfish that never touch each other, and they spray electricity to each other. And the last component of the brain is chemical. So those tentacles, they never touch those 90 billion jellyfish with the 10,000 tentacles each, all of that complexity, the trillions and trillions, it never touches. Uh, rather than touching, it sprays chemicals, words you've heard like dopamine, serotonin. Okay. Yeah. And so if we, if we know that structure, then when we get into things that are seem like impossible, humanly impossible, they should still fit within that. So when somebody lifts up something strong, they have released every, um, they have released hormonal uh, signals, chemical signals, electrical signals, uh, endorphins, and then it maximizes temporarily what that human body can do. Sure. Okay. So, th and this happens, you know, in the situation of an accident or something like that. Is it possible to sort of train your brain to do that maybe not at will but train mm. your brain such that it will release all those chemicals all those endorphins etc so that you can do something that normally you couldn't and i'm thinking about sort of endurance endurance, endurance sports you know because some people will you know they run three or four marathons at one go which yeah. just seems crazy how is it possible that a human body can do that? Do they, can they train themselves to, for the brain to release all that stuff and make it happen? Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a fantastic question, is how do these um, super athletes, why do they do it? How do they do it? <laughs> why? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I have, you know, marathon is a, a long drive in Los Angeles. And interestingly, for those people who think, they want health benefits of endurance. It's actually been shown that marathon runners don't necessarily live longer or have better physiology. There's something about the efficiency of the brain and body. It wants to exercise a couple of times a week. It wants to have, you know, some endurance and some, uh, some weight training. It wants to be vertical. It wants to eat certain foods. Like there's a balance that we can all achieve that would get us you know, 95% of the benefit without having to be only um, committed and wedded to, you know, extreme nutrition and extreme athletics. That said, I think, I, I think uh, runners get a high. That's for sure that after a certain while, uh, the brain is releasing chemicals. Absolutely. The brain is releasing Maybe not at the same pace and speed as the, the the chemicals released when somebody ingests cocaine, but the same chemicals, dopamine, that when you take cocaine, your brain releases the pharmacy in its mind. The cocaine doesn't go and do anything. The cocaine is a key to releasing the pharmacy that is already existing in your brain. And that pharmacy can be accessed through uh, love. That pharmacy, that pharmacy can be accessed through faith, joy. Uh, that fam pharmacy can uh, deploy itself during fear, depression, anxiety. So really the question is, 
why do people run for long distances? And after they get a runner's high after a certain amount of running and the rhythm to it and the blood flow, uh, the brain is showering itself with chemicals and they get two types of reward, that immediate reward and also the reward of fulfilling a goal. And I think that's where endurance athletes, they, they want to be distinctive. They want to say, I've run seven marathons, one a day in Africa, let's say, for example, in the desert. I think there's a marathon that does that or a, yeah, a type yeah, of uh, a race. And so they, I think they do it for two reasons. One, it's an achievement, climbing Mount Everest, doing these things. And two, I think they generally, um, it serves as an antidepressant or a stimulant for them. And the combination of both uh, added into the fact that they make it a habit because you can't get there without the structure of training uh, might be some of the forces underlying why people uh, become endurance athletes. Yeah. Interesting what you say about how it doesn't, it's not necessary in the long term good for the body. I mean, you know, you can wear out your knee if you do too many marathons, (laughs) presumably and, Ultimately, that's and not- your heart actually, yeah, and your heart. I mean, it's not uh, it's not more heartbeats the better. It's not uh, marathon is better than ten. It's the 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 heart and the brain. Um, they ask very little of you, uh, and the sweet spot is not endurance athletes. It's um, just being athletic and making exercise a regular part of your life, and not exercise that's stagnant. The body, particularly brain, responds to just one level beyond what you're used to. It's thirsty right. for challenge. It will not. It will not respond if you just do. If the if you run two miles a day, four kilometers a day, whatever it is, and you stay on that rhythm, that's good for your heart. And it might be temporarily good for the way your brain feels. But if you want it to be really good for your brain, run different lengths, run in different environments change things up, change the speed up because that, Hey, this is not, this is not the usual makes the the sleep, uh, makes the brain get out of its hibernation mode because now it has to pay attention. That will improve your cognition. If you're trying to be smarter from running, that's a better way to go. If you want to, you know, keep the hard arteries open, absolutely run a couple of kilometers, a couple of weeks, a couple of times a week or walk a couple of kilometers. But the brain is distinctive in that, that the, the delta, the chain, the novelty, the challenge is what engages it, engages it. And if you do that, it will shower itself with healing chemicals such as BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophin factor, its own miracle grow, its own fertilizer. It's there, but it, yeah. it uses it sparingly to condition yourself to, hey, this was good for me. I'm going to reward myself and nurture, my, nurture the ecosystem that is my brain. So shake it up a little bit is kind of the, the, the absolutely yeah. Go for a run, in every, in every a single one. one fall in love the next day. You know, it's all good for the brain. <laughs> if one can, that sounds like a wonderful life. <laughs> so when just back to the endurance sports part part of being able to do an in, endurance sport is kind of ig- ignoring the pain because I'm sure once you've done two or three marathons, something's going to hurt and these guys, these people must be able to just ignore the pain or have some pain control. Is that, do you think, part of what's happening in the brain? Well, they're experiencing pain, but those, uh, those chemicals that are rewarding them can subdue the pain. That's oh. an interesting comment on pain, which is 
if you don't have, you know, if you have mental health issues, pain is perceived as worse uh, if, if you uh, test the same person when they're feeling better about themselves. So pain is also a balance of reward chemicals and uh, stress chemicals, right. um, as is the pain that these endurance athletes are feeling. The, the goal of achieving their goal, the endorphins, the, the pain relieving chemicals that are being released help them achieve these uh, seemingly extreme goals. Right. So what, so what I was wondering is if someone who can, who does this, if they weren't running and they, I don't know, stubbed their toe or hurt or really hurt themselves badly, you know, broke a leg or something, could they then use that pain control mechanism to deal with the pain in that situation? But it, it, it seems like it's a slightly different I think, thing. I mean, that's it. That's a, that's an interesting question. I don't think my my best understanding, my guess is it doesn't it doesn't work for you know you've had surgery or you just broke your leg. It really works for why some people have chronic pain or they have knee pain, and exercise can actually help them feel less of that joint pain. I think it's more for uh, chronic pain than it is for uh, an acute fracture or an acute surgical incision. Right. Okay. So really the, the, the summary that's coming out of this, uh, this chat might be, if you're thinking of doing some exercise, just, you don't have to aim to do a marathon, just do lots of different things. And in fact, if you do, you know, physical endurance type sports, it might not be so good for you. Yeah. I, that, I believe that. And listen, I live in Los Angeles um, and everything here is uh it's summertime and then they show somebody with you know all the muscles and they're, they're on the beach and running nobody no no physician i mean i don't know actually i shouldn't say no physician i'm not suggesting that that's what's good for you uh, what i'm saying is um if you're sitting on the couch too much maybe just stand around your home if you're starting to stand maybe go for a walk if you walk bring in some speed walking a couple of times a week um if cycling swimming so do a little bit more and your, your brain will reward yourself with feelings and thoughts that may actually be better than the person who's running consistently three kilometers a day. It's the change that will be your thrill. Uh, and that's the small changes and, and the positive reinforcement that your brain will give itself lead to the, 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 the steps that change lifestyles. Right. But this thing about be a marathon runner, look like the Hollywood actor. It's it, the brain just looks at it and says, uh, no, not achievable. <laughs> and it dials it out. But right. the small steps, then it can look back a year or two later and say, Hey, wait a second. That wasn't so bad because it was done incrementally in each step. There was a reward mechanism. Okay. On a, on a slightly different tack, when I, I go for the occasional jog now. So, and I, I have actually done many years ago, a marathon before, I decided it wasn't mm. such a great idea. And I, I go for the occasional jog now. And what I do notice is that I seem to be able to, um, my, my, my brain is more open to thoughts. Like I might have ideas mm -hmm. about this, that, and the next thing, or a way to mm -hmm. solve a particular problem um, when I'm just going for a, a little jog. Is, 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 is there any um, science behind Biology that? Biology to that. Yeah, there is physical activity is directly connected. Now, we're not talking about living longer or, or avoiding heart attacks. We're just talking about peak brain performance, brain power, physical activity, 
has been directly shown uh, to do two things. In the long term, it keeps the plumbing, the arteries going into your brain open. That means the flesh will be irrigated nicely and less likely to wither. More importantly, when you are running immediately before or after, and they've done some experiments with people trying to memorize things after being on a treadmill or before, and the exercise was somehow loosely connected to improving memory. But what I'm saying is we know that exercise will lead to the release of brain-derived neurotrophin factor. They call it BDNF. It's not a hormone. It's not a chemical. It's not electricity. It's a molecule that the tissue of the brain uses to stay vibrant. It's like the way uh, certain fertilizers will lead to a lush garden. That is released. That is released when we exercise. And so... And that, that activates and affects thought at a faster pattern uh, than one would suspect. And people have mentioned, uh, mathematicians and others, movement and exercise uh, can help you think. So there is absolutely a clarity that comes for multiple reasons when you exercise. One is a BDNF because you might actually be showering your brain with supportive chemicals as well as the electricity uh, jumping around faster. That's conceivable. And also, you've showered yourself, you know, your brain has showered itself with endorphins and the reward chemicals. You're, you know, your mood is better. Your perception uh, about the problem is clearer and better. So both, um, the clear, clear science that exercise helps you feel better and think better. Yeah, that's interesting. Can you comment a bit on sort of how much exercise you might need? So what I mean by that is certainly in the in the UK, there's a kind of a and I think in the States as well, there's a shift towards desks that go up and down so you can work standing up Mm -hmm. if you want to. And also Mm -hmm. a lot of people in an office, if they're having an important phone call, they'll do this kind of it's a bit irritating for everyone else in the office, but they'll walk (laughs) up and down and standing into the phone. So would do you think standing as opposed to sitting might t- switch those things on or is that just people I don't know it? no no I, I don't know but I think I, I don't think it's at the moment you stand I don't think it's the moment you take your first few steps in a run right. I think it's the activity getting the heart rate going the blood flow I think that takes time but standing is uh, hurting our bodies in different ways it's leading to uh, you know, shrinking of muscles and contracture of ligaments in our pelvis and the changing of the alignment in our spine. And then it brings in chronic pain and, and you don't have to, you know, you don't need proof to know that. And in pain, it's hard to think. It's hard to think clearly. Of course. Um, so that's a, that's a different road. Yeah. All right. Okay. In, in, interesting. All right. So I think maybe the, um, the, the summary of, of, of this little this section of, of chat might be healthy body, healthy mind. <laughs> which is which is yeah. uh, you know that's an old wives saying an old wives tale but you know i think it's kind of true well more and more we know it's true and i think the lesson from endurance athletes is um that the mind can drive you to do anything it can drive you to do dangerous things and it can also drive you to do phenomenal high achieving things um it can hurt itself and it can heal itself. So back to mind and matter, 
um, they, they cannot be separated. That is the uniqueness of this flesh that it creates consciousness. You know what I mean? It just, I'll just conclude there with, uh, you know, the heart has three types of doctors in America and likely around the world. You know, one is a heart surgeon and then uh, uh, the other is, you know, a cardiologist. And then you have uh, other people who do uh, electrical changes to the heart. If you have arrhythmias and those, those nerves are essentially descendants of, of the brain. And the brain has all those things too. You know, you've got the brain surgeon, you've got the neurologist that gives you the pills, and then you've got, you know, people who tinker with electricity. And then there's also a psychiatrist or psychologist. <laughs> it is the only organ that has a fourth position, mind position. And the mind arises from the structure that we talked about, flesh, electricity, chemistry. And it arises from it and it also drives it. And so, the, the, the inexorable combination of those two things, it's not mind over matter, it's mind is matter. And absolutely healthy, uh, healthy brain, healthy body and vice versa. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. I think that's a, a very nice place to stop, a nice summary there. So um, Dr. Jandal, thank you so much. Just before we finish this section, please just mention your book one more time, if you will mind. It's called Life Lessons from a Brain Surgeon. And... Uh, I put a lot into it and um, it's 10 years of unbelievable but true stories, uh, science that's easy to understand so you won't feel like you're in a classroom, and then some suggestions that you may or may not want to apply. I, I, I don't preach, I don't judge, I just want to share with you all these amazing things I've been privileged to see in the last decade. Yeah, cool. All right. Very interesting. And thank you so much for chatting. Thank you. My pleasure. Next guest. Professor Greg White is an academic, but he did represent Team GB at the Olympics in the modern pentathlon. So he's done all these things in practice himself. And I started by asking him if he was an elite athlete first and then became an academic or whether he did both at the same time. I was born at a time and competed at a time where there was no money in sport, lottery funding hadn't started, lottery funding didn't start until 1998. Um, and so actually at the time, you either worked or you studied. Uh, and so I studied um, and then and it sort of developed from there. So actually by the time I retired, actually almost at the same time as I retired, um, I just finished my PhD um, at St. George's Hospital Medical School uh, and retired almost at exactly the same time before taking up a post at the, uh, at the British Olympic Medical Centre. I see. Okay, so you you were an elite athlete in the good old days. Was it the good old days? <laughs> I mean, you know, elite athletes it's just different, isn't it? It's a different situation. No, I, I, you know, I, it's interesting because at the time I was I was one of the very few dissenting voices um, for um, lottery funding um, because because of actually one of the big problems with money is that is that what it does is it creates a false sense of life to some extent for athletes i think is that is that we've actually now moved to a position where athletes are incredibly well looked after they're very well funded um but actually what they don't do is they don't earn the type of money that you see in the premiership um to actually make that lifelong so so one of the one of the major problems we have now is actually life after sport for athletes so so to some extent whilst i occasionally bemoan the fact that i used to have to pay for all of my training and all of my travel um, I think the fact is that, that it, it 
sort of made me and athletes of that era much more robust and much much better able to cope with life after sport whereas now i think that's a much bigger problem interesting very in fact that that could be a a, a whole program in itself i i i, I suspect but let, let's put yeah. that to one side <laughs> so in the good old days when you competed um actually what 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 were the dates of your career your elite athletic career Wow. So I, I competed in my first international in 1986. Um, I, I competed in my first world junior championships, so first world championships in 1986, the same year. Uh, and then I actually went all the way through to a sort of circa, I mean, I, I was around in sort of 1999. It was that sort of that, that time when I started to uh, pull back. In fact, I stayed within the sport in modern pentathlon. Uh, much as a mentor, really, for new athletes sort of coming through. Um, but it was certainly post-Atlanta post Olympics was really the sort of end of my career. Right. Um, but, I, but, but I sort of held on for a couple more years because I loved it, I absolutely loved it and loved the way of life. Okay, excellent. And so I, I do have to ask you kind of a bit of an embarrassing question. I, I haven't done my homework properly. Now I'm worried. <laughs> what exactly is the modern pentathlon? Oh, you see, now there's the question. So I, I should ask you that question. <laughs> well, I mean, a it load is, of different sports. It is a load of different. It's a, it's a, a multi-event sport. Um, most people sort of recognise multi-event as decathlon and heptathlon, particularly with the success that we've had in both those sports with the likes of Daley Thompson and Jessica Ennis Hill, etc. But in fact, modern pentathlon is, is different. Modern pentathlon was created by the founder of the modern Olympics, Baron Pierre de Coubertin. Uh, whose idea was to have military representation. And the idea was that, that it replicated an officer delivering a message across the battlefield from point A to point B. And in doing that, they needed to do the sports of modern pentathlon. And that was fencing, shooting, running, swimming, and show jumping. Uh, and from 1896, the inaugural Olympic Games, modern pentathlon was in and remains it's one of the longest serving sports in the Olympic, uh, Olympic program. Right. Uh, so it's, so it's, it's those five sports. And interestingly enough, we are, modern pentathlon is the, it's certainly top 10 of most successful Olympic sports of all time for great brand. Um, but obviously it's not really, a, it's not, you know, it's not majorly a, a spectator sport. It's not a great sport for television, although since my retirement, it's changed quite dramatically to make it more televisual. Has it, how, how's it changed? Well, they, they, they've changed. So what you see now, if you watch Modern Pentathlon now, is that it's all done in one day. When I first started, it was over five days. Okay. Um, add on top of that, that the final event is the run, but they've now put the shoot inside it. So, so anybody who knows anything about um, uh, biathlon, winter biathlon, where it's ski shoot, uh, it's a similar sort of model now with the run shoot. So it, it's, it's sort of much more dramatic, much more engaging. Um, so just, just the way they, they've structured it um, effectively makes it, makes it better televisually and so therefore brings right. more media to it. It does sound like it's more exciting. What? Uh, it, it, do you know what? I, I, towards the end of my career, I, I, I it moved to one day. It moved to one day in 1994. Um, and that was probably my most successful period. I won... Uh, a world silver medal in 1994 on the one day format um, and, and it, was, it was probably definitely best suited for me and, and to my mind was definitely a much more exciting sport uh, a much more watchable sport to get everything done in one day although right. it was inc incredibly tough as an athlete to oh, all, five God, events in a day. All, those, all those things in one day I just think you're probably <laughs> in that <Blimey>. yeah. <laughs> um, anyway let's move on a bit onto your, your ac academic career what 
what was your PhD in? Oh, do you want the full title? <laughs> well, I, I, want, I want, okay, I'm not an academic. I want something I can understand. No, that's right. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it, 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 effectively, um, I mean, it's an interesting story because I, I, I studied my master's degree uh, in the United States at the, the University of Fro Frostburg State University, which is part of the University of Maryland system. Um, and I was interested in how the heart responds to exercise. Um, and, and I remember when I flew back from the US, I, um, I read a report on the front page of, of, of the newspaper I was reading on the plane. And, and tragically, uh, a young man called Daniel Yorath, uh, who is actually Gabby Logan's uh, brother, Terry Yorath's son, who was, who was um, manager of Wales, uh, he had died suddenly in his back garden, having just been signed for Everton. Right. Um, and that sudden cardiac death, um, when I looked at it, actually aligned really quite well with the work that I'd been doing in the US around the impact of exercise on the heart. And so what, what became of interest to me was this ability to look at what happens to the heart of an athlete uh, and how that differs to what happens in disease. So it's called the differential between physiologic, an athlete, and pathologic, a, a, a diseased patient's heart. Okay. Uh, and, the re and the reason why differentiating is really important is because some of the things that we see in athletes' hearts, uh, some of the, the adaptations that occur because of sport can actually mimic disease. Um, they look like disease. Uh, and so therefore making sure that they are normal and physiologic in nature is really important to make sure that we reduce the incidence of sudden death in sport. So, so does that follow on that there comes a point where if you're uh, doing sport and training, at a very, very high level, that it becomes unhealthy for you if you push yourself too hard? No, 100% not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely not. I mean, and, and I think part, part of what I've you know, done over three decades now is around the education of this is that often when we see somebody die suddenly in, for example, one of the big city marathons, so the London Marathon, for example, it, it immediately, the, the, the thinking is that it's exercise related or it's due to the exercise. In fact, what it is, it's due to an underlying condition. So it's, it's a pre-existing condition mm -hmm. which, has been, which has been undiagnosed. And, and because physical activity, exercise, sport is such a profound stimulus on the cardiovascular system, on the heart, uh, then what it does, it actually precipitates uh, the, a, a, a fatal cardiac event. So it's not exercise per se, it's, just, it's actually the, the existing disease and exercise just allows a platform for, for a, what, what we call the fatal arrhythmia, an unusual rhythm in the heart. Right. So would your, but, could your research potentially help people in that situation to, to sort of guide them into what sort of exercise they should be doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and my early work and then work following that for, for, for three decades, uh, along with a, a good friend of mine and colleague of mine called Sanjay Sharma, who's now the, the director of medical services for the London Marathon. We together, we established the screening program uh, of athletes, which now runs across the UK and in fact, globally. Uh, places like the, the UCI, uh, the IOC, um, lots of other international sporting bodies run our um, screening program. But what we're doing with that screening is trying to identify problems early to reduce the incidence of right. sudden death. Okay, interesting. Actually, I, I, know, I know Sanjay, 
I tried to get him to talk on this show, um, but at the time, well, no, I'd love to, but at the time he was busy. He was organizing the London Marathon. Yeah, um, yeah so he's a I, very, very busy guy, but a great guy. And we, we, we actually studied, I, I did my PhD while he was doing his MD uh, together at St. George's. Right. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, I should have another guy trying to chat with him. So that, so that's sort of your research in, in a nutshell, if it's possible to put 30 years of research into a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> and you, but you do a lot of other stuff now. You, uh, you, you also, you help celebs when it comes to comic relief, when they do some of these crazy sporting things. Um, yeah, for sure. And, and do, do you find they're good students? Uh, they are very good students. I think the interesting thing about celebrities is that, that effectively the difference between them and elite athletes is just simply where their skill set lies. Is that the, the, what, you, what you find with, with entertainers, with writers, with musicians, is that they understand exactly what an elite athlete understands. They, firstly and crucially, they understand what hard work is. Mm -hmm. uh, they, definitely, they definitely understand nothing good comes easy, uh, which is a, a sort of big mantra of mine. They, they are incredibly tenacious. They're very driven, much like athletes are. Um, and, and critically, they're, they're actually able to deal with both success, but also to deal with failure. And, and that's really important when you're training for some of these big challenges to understand that it's not always going to go well. Um, so the interesting thing is that about them is that they are great. They are great students um, because they have all the attributes of an elite athlete. Yeah. It just, it's just that their skill set lies in a slightly different place instead of being yeah, that's a that, swimmer. That overlap is, kind of, is quite interesting, yeah. But yeah. Which, are you, which one are you – this might be an impossible question, but I'll ask it anyway. Are you more <laughs> proud of any other of these uh, celebs? And, uh, you know, which one are you most proud of helping? Well, do you know what? I'm incredibly proud of all of them, obviously. Um, I think my mind always goes down, down to the first, and that was I looked after David Williams uh, when he, in fact, I've, I've looked after David Williams on four challenges now, but when he swam the English Channel back in 2006, it was, it was an iconic moment. It was the first time it had ever been done um, by a celebrity on television, raising money. Uh, and so everything around it was, was unique. Um, and, and so I think that... that and it was a truly an amazing achievement. And so I think that, that will always stick in my mind. But equally, all of the challenges that we've done. Um, I mean, I've worked on 32 of them. Oh my so goodness. it's been a lot It's been a lot of them. But they've all been fantastic. The one that sticks in my mind, and you may have helped him, I, I don't know, is Eddie Izzard doing 40 yeah. marathons in 50 days. Oh, that's just bonkers, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah, <laughs> yeah I looked after Eddie. It was, a, it was, a, it was an intriguing challenge. Because uh, we had such a short period of time to prep for that, and in fact, the, the the way I constructed it was that actually the early marathons became part of the training process. Weirdly enough, right? Um, but you know, the greatest achievement on Eddie's, to my mind, is I've got this fabulous picture of uh, him and me running the final marathon. Uh, and and to some extent, my, it, it, my job is one of two things on these challenges. Number one is to get is to get the celeb from point A to point B, is to be successful. But obviously, you've got to do that and maintain health at the same time you know what you don't want to do is, is have a, a lifelong problem associated with it um but the great thing about that particular challenge was that eddie's fastest marathon was his final marathon his 43rd marathon was the fastest of the 43 and, and that and that to me is the, the best example of where you where we kept him healthy uh, both physically, structurally, but also mentally and emotionally, that he right. was able to come out and, and run his fastest marathon. I mean, a truly fabulous achievement. 
That is impressive because I mean, my, you know, I, I, I haven't met Eddie Izzard, but I've seen him on the telly, and my thought of him when I, I, I was looking at this, he's like, he's very funny, but is he really a great physical specimen? I suppose he was. <laughs> finished with him. <laughs> well, listen, he did forty-three marathons, so yeah, he was pretty impressive. <laughs> I, mean, I think the interesting thing is that none of these guys are, and but I think that that's what makes it, that's what makes it so attractive because. They are incongruous. You know, if I, if I think about, you know, I mean, I looked after Joe Brand and we walked 140 miles from Hull to Liverpool. I mean, it, it just an incredible achievement. Made even, even, more, uh, even more impressive because we don't think of Joe Brand as being, uh, as being able to achieve something like that. And I think the incongruous nature of the, of the celebrities is really what makes the, these challenges right. very engaging, engaging for the public. I thought that's interesting because that makes me think of the, kind of the next thing I wanted to ask is that, you know, a regular guy, Joe Public, sit here to someone doing 43 marathons in 50 days, you know, they're going to shy away. Did you think that sort of thing would inspire the rest of us to go and do some exercise? I mean, maybe that's not the objective, actually. The objective is to raise some money. But even so, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure it does. I think you know, it's an interesting one because I, 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 I would probably disagree because I think it, I think it does. And the reason I say that is, I mean, you know, I was an elite athlete. I worked in elite sport uh, for over 15 years. Uh, I was director of research for the British Olympic Medical Centre. So, I, I, you know, I spent a, a, I spent a lifetime in elite sport. And elite sport is, it, we, we like to coin it as inspirational. Uh, and I think, I think uh, to some extent, if you're careful about the use of that term, I think what elite sport is, is entertainment. Is that we watch Mo Farah run a 205 for a marathon and we are impressed and we are entertained, but we don't look at him and think, I could do that. Because <laughs> no, completely, it, it, it's completely different. I think in every athlete, it, it, you know, you watch elite sport. The great thing about elite athletes, what they do is they make it look easy, they make it look simple. Uh, and because of that, and, and also because of, of where they come from, often people look at that and, and actually it's not, it's not inspiring them to go and do it. It's simply entertaining them. Whereas I think actually some of these other challenges where we see ordinary people become extraordinary, uh, I think they, they truly are inspirational. I, I mean, you can imagine how often I speak to people who say, oh, I watched so-and-so do that. And because of that, I then went on to do X and Y. Um, and I think I think actually that the the type of challenges that you see with you know I mean this is inverted compass but ordinary non elite athletes doing I think actually are truly inspirational I think they do engage the public in actually becoming more physically active I think they're incredibly important in fact. Okay, oh good. Well, that's, that's a good good point of view. Do you do you deal with um, or give advice to people you know, regular people who want to become a bit more active, but you know, it's not something they've ever done. Do you give advice? What What do you suggest they get up to or do? Yeah, I mean, I do an awful lot of that now. So I, so I have a, um, a practice on Harley Street, the Centre for Health and Human Performance, where, where what we've done really is take the, the, the model of what I used to deliver, I mean, we still do, but deliver to elite athletes and make it available to all. Um, and I think much of that, the, the sort of the, the stream that runs through the entire clinic is actually exercise. It's about physical activity and promoting physical activity. And then obviously I spend a huge amount of time in the media uh, promoting physical activity. And I think that you know, the, the, the simple message is that we, we reside in an inactive population. Uh, we have become progressively less active 
we now work in much more sedentary jobs. You know, wh where we used to get a lot of our activity from was vocational. Uh, we would work in the, the mines, steel industry, the manufacturing industry, whereas now we've become much more of a, of a service-based sector economy. And so it's much more sedentary. Yeah. Office workers in this country spend in excess of nine hours a day sat down. That is over three quarters of their waking life sitting. So I think it, for me, the, the, the most important message when it comes to physical activity is actually just a little bit can make a massive difference. Uh, and, right. and we know that from the, 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 the curve, which is associated between activity and, and all cause mortality, all of those things that will kill us early. We know that actually just moving from nothing to a little has an absolutely profound effect on our health, both physical, mental, emotional, and social. So much of the messaging I talk about to people is actually, I have this, I, I've sort of coined this mantra, which I talk to people about, and that is do more today than you did yesterday. Right. And so if you, if you only stood up out of your chair once yesterday, then stand up twice today. And that is progress. That is, that is, that is progression. And if you do that day on day, eventually what you will do is you'll get to a point where you meet the WHO and CMO guidelines for physical activity for health. You will be physically active and you will benefit from all of those factors, uh, all of those aspects that physical activity confers. Actually, what are those guidelines? Uh, well, for, for adults, slightly different for children. So for adults, it's 30 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity on most days of the week. And people always say, well, what does that mean? And basically, it's brisk walking. Anything that gets you out of breath um, for 30 minutes. Uh, you can actually do that in smaller packets. So you can do it in 10-minute packets. Um, if you do it at higher intensity, so high-intensity exercise, you can reduce that to 75 minutes over the week instead of the 150-minute target. Right. Um, crucially, add on top of that strength. So strength exercise is incredibly important particularly as we age and it's one of the key things that dictates independence in later life is muscle mass and strength okay. so strength exercise is important for children it's effectively double that so it's 60 minutes a, uh, 60 minutes a day on most days of the week um and Are sadly you doing some work specifically on that now is that right i am yeah i mean you know it, it's it's absolutely stark i mean we have the first we have the first generation of children predicted to live shorter lives than their parents uh, and concurrent with the, the least active children uh, in, in history. Um, and if you, if you look at the stats, what you're talking about is 10%, only 10% of girls and 20% of boys at the age of 14 actually meet the CMO WHO guidelines for physical activity for health. That's an hour a day for kids. That's an hour a day. Nine in ten girls at the age of fourteen do less than an hour a day of physical activity. I mean, that is—it's incredible. And you think about how how does that happen? But but that's that's where we're at. And of course, the key issue around that is that the inactivity at, in those crucial formative years will dictate both future habits, future activity, but critically future health. Right, uh, and okay. so, what we what we are doing is we're cooking up a recipe. Uh, for a, a, a future epidemic of ill health, of chronic disease, because of inactivity in early years. What, what specifically, what sort of horrors are being saved up? So if you do exercise as a, as a kid when you're 14, 
do you kind of to some extent protect yourself a little bit from what heart disease or what what kind of things do you yeah say? i mean so we call it all cause mortality i mean it is a nice one i mean i i edit a book called the abc of sport and exercise medicine it's a british medical journal publication and i remember on the on the third edition which was about 15 years ago um we had one we had one sentence on childhood type 2 diabetes uh, now we have an entire chapter right. uh, and i think that tells you where we've got to is that, that actually uh, interestingly for me i think what we do is we bang on a bit too much about obesity and i think what we've done is we've desensitized people because what we've done is we've made the media have made it into an aesthetic issue it's about what you look like you know being obese is about a look it's not about what's going on underneath the bonnet and I think what we should be doing is focusing actually on the impact of that because it's just one one outcome of inactivity and poor diet. Um, so the, the sort of things that we're talking about is heart disease, stroke, cancer, uh, type 2 diabetes, peripheral vascular disease, uh, Alzheimer's. Uh, I, mean, you know, I mean, the list goes on. I mean, the list, list goes on and on. And, and, you know, we have lovely evidence to demonstrate the, the, the positive impact of physical activity on health. Uh, and if you think in the, the counter to that is that, that just to put it into to terms, I think people understand is that physical inactivity. So being inactive uh, confers the same risk of cardiovascular disease as being a smoker. And, and most of us understand how profoundly bad smoking is for our yeah, health. That will make people sit up and listen, I'm sure. But I don't think, I don't think we quite understand the, the, the importance of, of activity, but it's incredibly important for health. Goodness me. Well, I actually, I, I occasionally go for the odd jog. And what I try and do is make sure my children see me just to see this yep. kind of normal behaviour. <laughs> yep. Not brilliant. Like, Absolutely no brilliant. Anything, but just so it's, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's just sad going for one of his runs. So to try and instill that, that, that's something. And I'm lucky, actually. They, they both love uh, doing ballet dancing. And that, that's pretty demanding. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, dance is fantastic. Nine-year-old boy. And they, they, they do plenty of dancing. But Good. I suppose they, it seems like they're the rarity at the moment. Sadly, that is the case. I mean, they are the rarity, uh, you know, and, and that, you know, there, there are lots of things that, that we need to change. I think, you know, education is a critical place that we need to change attitudes towards physical activity instead of reducing the requirement for physical education and active breaks at schools. We should be increasing that instead of selling off playing fields. We should be stopping selling off playing fields and actually developing those playing fields. You know, there's lots of things that we should be doing around that. But but actually, for me, I think that of all of those factors that impact on the child's activity, I think parents are absolutely kingpin in that. And I think that, that one of my worries is that if we look at physical activity in, in adults, we are the one of, if not the least active nations in the world. And I think what the reason why we have inactive children, one of the reasons why we have inactive children is because we have inactive parents. And I think the, cru the crucial thing for us to think about as older adults is that, that we are role models for what our children do. Yeah. Okay. So maybe a good last question would be, so, you know, if you are a parent and you've got young children, how some advice on just getting everyone active, uh, the children and, and parents, you know, what, what would you well, suggest a, a family to do? I think two, probably two, two key things. Uh, and they are do it together 
So this, yeah. this is not about send, just sending kids out in, in the back garden or into the park and expecting them to do it. Join in with them. Make, make it as a family affair. And, and I think if you do that, what you are doing is you're demonstrating the importance. You are, role, you are the role model in that environment. I think crucially, make it fun. And yeah. any activity any activity is good activity and and believe you me I've, at the moment i've got an image of you wearing your lycra going out for a run you don't want that image i, I don't know no, you're right I'm, try, I'm trying to get rid of it <laughs> but you know i mean you know to reassure the listeners you know it, you don't need specialist equipment you don't need to belong to an expensive gym uh, you, you don't need any real expertise in this area what you need to do is just be more active more often, do more today than you did yesterday, make it fun and make it a family affair. And I think if you do that over time, it will become part of what you do. It just becomes part of your, the fabric of family living is to be more physically active. And not only will your children benefit, but you as a parent will benefit in the long term as well. That sounds like the perfect advice and the, the perfect place to leave it. So. So, um, Professor Greg White, thank you very much for chatting. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It's been brilliant. Thank you very much to my guests on this week's episode of the Relax Back UK show. And they were Dr. Rahul Jandal, neurosurgeon and neuroscientist, and Professor Greg White. He is a modern pentathlete Olympian and an academic. And of course, thank you to you for listening. That was Mike Dilk of Relax Back UK. Thank you for listening and please join us again next time.